Hey everyone. My name is Reese. I am one of the pastors here at Calvary. It's great to see you. And uh, to those who are on live stream, welcome to you as well. Uh, you might be experiencing some tef- technical difficulties. We apologize for that. Uh, if you're on vacation, we're collectively bitter, just so you know. <laughs> but we hope you enjoy. Um, most of us, most of us, would say that one of the most uncomfortable human experiences is conflict. Would you agree? So uncomfortable. Yet, some of us, maybe even most of us, relish a bit of a dust-up every now and then. And you might be thinking to yourself right now, that's not me. That's not me. But uh, just to prove my thesis, I was at uh, a Vancouver Canucks game a few days ago. Um, It's your obligation to say I'm so sorry. (laughs) We were sitting high up in the stands, my brother and I, and in the corner of the rink, um, we're kind of close to the net, um, a bit of a scrap kind of began to unfold. Two players started to get frustrated at each other, and they were pulling and pushing each other, and it looked like a fight was about to break out. And that arena can get pretty loud, but it never got louder that night than when this was about to go down. It was roaring. People were hollering and smiling and laughing and, and yelling out. It was so loud, and the excitement level went up, 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 up. And I thought to myself, wow, okay, this is what a lot of people want to see. And I think it's just part of this deep, um, I don't know, nasty kind of part of our human condition. Um, we, we pay big bucks, big bucks to sometimes see a conflict unfold, whether that be in the arena. I mean, there's a reason they haven't taken fighting out of hockey. Because the fans love it. They love it. They don't want to take it out. And there's a reason we pay big bucks to go to the theaters and we watch Batman or something. It's just a guy beating people up. Paul, the apostle, uh, he used to love conflict. He was a Pharisee, so he would spend like 90% of his time arguing with people. And then maybe the other percentage of his time hunting for Christians to persecute and kill. But here, in, in this passage we're about to read, we see Paul the Apostle urging and pleading for peace. Peace. And so if you have your Bibles, would you open up to Philippians 4? We're going to look at verses 1 to 9. And with this plea for peace, or to be of the same mind, that's the language he uses, Paul follows up with the how. He doesn't really get into the, uh, the deep theological why we should be people of peace. I mean, I think that would be clear to us if we really read about the person of Jesus um, 
and it would be clear to the Philippians as well, but he really gets into the how. Instructions regarding how this same mind can be obtained, how we can be people of peace. And this is the big idea from this text that we want to circle back to. In order to make peace with one another, in order to make peace with one another, we need to be joyful, gentle, prayerful, and we need to be reminded of virtues. And so from here, we're going to work through this passage you're looking at, whether on your device or in your physical Bible. We're going to work through it bit by bit, pausing to sit with certain verses or texts or words, and then we'll hopefully arrive back at this big idea and be able to take something from it. So let's read Philippians 4, uh, verses 1 to 9 together. I'm reading out of the NIV. Verse 1. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I long and love for, or love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me, or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. Let's pray. God, as we explore this passage of Scripture, would we be reminded of your goodness, that you're a God that's for us, not against us, that you love us. Would we rest in that truth this morning, that you love us? God, as uh, I teach out of this text, would you help me to stay faithful to it? Holy Spirit, would you guide me? In your name we pray. Amen. So we see two names in the beginning of this text that we need to highlight. Uh, interesting names. Euodia and Syntyche. They are two women in this church in Philippi. They're leaders they are 
important church leaders and they are friends. Paul rarely mentions anyone by name. If you read Paul's letters in the literature, he, he doesn't really do this often, except when he does, it's often uh, those who hold a uh, deep importance in his life and who are leaders in the church. So Paul calls these two women his co-workers, his co-workers that have contended at his side in the gospel. And so many scholars believe that Paul's address to Euodia and Syntyche is at the very core of this letter. It's like a lot, a lot of scholars would say this might actually be the whole reason for this letter in general. That this is why Paul, from prison, is writing this letter to the Philippians. It's to address this conflict. To address whatever is happening between these two leaders. Bonnie Thurston, theologian, suggests that this conflict between these two leaders is representative of an overall disunity that's existing within the church in Philippi. Another theologian, Davern Peterland, speculates that the, dis the disagreement between them, the dispute between them, it marks the, the main problem facing this church. And so this is super crucial for Paul to tackle in this letter. And Paul knows that it's not, it's not uncommon for there to be disagreement in ministry. If you are familiar with the New Testament and Paul's story, you know that um, Barnabas, this co-missionary, his friend, he, they were very, very close. But they had a huge disagreement. They had another missionary with them named John Mark, and they were going to go on their second big missionary journey. And Paul and Barnabas had a, a dispute on whether or not they should allow John Mark to tag along. So they split up. They went their separate ways. Paul went one way, and Barnabas and John Mark went the other way. And um, we know, and there's this kind of allusion to a reconciliation between these two, and Paul speaking fondly of John Mark and of Barnabas. And so that's why Paul can write to these two women out of experience, out of a kind of closeness and passion for this story, not out of a distance from the situation and just kind of um, an empty, empty advice or platitudes. So when we read this passage, it's really, really easy to recognize that we're reading someone else's mail. It's almost as if we just opened up someone's letter and started reading it with no context. There's so much that we're missing here. We don't know exactly who Euodia and Syntyche are. We don't know their stories. We don't know their family of origin. We don't even know the cause of their disagreement. What are they disagreeing over? We don't know that. We don't know Paul's exact relationship with them either. There's stuff that we're actually really missing here, but we do know two things. This is what we do know. That these people are known to God. They have a relationship with God. And their names are in the book of life, Paul writes. And number two, for all of Paul's misread and misunderstood statements about women, we see that these two women, Euodia and Syntyche, are visibly present and significantly present while Paul references his partners and co-workers in ministry. Women preached and prayed 
in the churches that Paul was involved in and led. This is something we can back up even if we look at Acts chapter 16, verse 13. It says that the church in Philippi, the church that this letter is written to, was actually started when Paul went to a prayer gathering and sat down and spoke to the women who had come together to worship God. And this is where Paul met Lydia. And if we read ahead to verse 40 of Acts chapter 16, we see that Lydia was actually hosting and leading this original house church in Philippi. Women played a significant role in Paul's church ministry and church planting journey. So then Paul, if we read ahead, he brings this other person into this conflict resolution. Who is this person? He calls them true companion. Or maybe in your Bible that you're reading, it says uh, yoke fellow. (laughs) Should start calling your close friends that my true yoke fellow. We don't know who this person is. We, there, there's a lot of uh, speculation that it's um, maybe Luke or maybe Timothy or someone of that sort, but we, we just don't know. And so uh, Paul wants this person to be a key part of uh, helping Euodia and Syntyche come together and agree in the Lord and reconcile. And then he also mentions a man named Clement. And he mentions the rest of his co-workers, people who can help and serve Euodia and Syntyche in this journey of reconciliation. And again, we don't know why Paul mentions Clement, maybe leaves out other names. These few verses are a great reminder that we're reading this intimate friendship letter between a leader and their church. That Paul very, very likely had no idea that this letter would be read uh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years later and used for teaching. This is a letter to the Philippians, not a letter to Calvary Baptist. But we believe that God can use this text and this passage of Scripture to edify believers today and to help us grow in our faith. Uh, so Paul here, he's, he's really trying to release a little bit of tension within this church so that it can become uh, healthier. One of my closest friends is a physiotherapist, a new one. And uh, we were just chatting and I said, my jaw's a little sore. Sometimes I say that as kind of a bit of a passive way of like, can, can you help me? And I said, my jaw's a little bit sore. I don't know why. Maybe I was sleeping on it wrong. I don't know if that is a thing. And uh, he said, oh, can, you, can you open your jaw up for me? And I did. It was all crooked. And, uh, you know, he's like, yeah, it looks a little bit weird. I said, I said, it's really sore on my left side. And he says, um, okay, well, you know, touch this, this part on your jaw and um, kind of hold it and put some pressure on the, on the right side. And I said, no. It's actually the left side that hurts. <laughs> and he said, I know. Put pressure on the right side, on that, that point of tension. Because he said it's often that um, when there is uh, tension and tightness in one part of the jaw, the other side of the jaw feels the pain. Uh, and I, I just think that's so 
what Paul recognizes about the church. That when there is tension in one side of the body, other parts of the body can actually experience the pain. This is what Paul does so well as an apostle and a leader. He points out areas of tension within these churches that he's ministering to in hopes that this point of tension can be relieved so that the body can flourish as a whole. Okay, there's, there's part one. We're going to jump into part two. Are you still with me, church? Yeah. Okay. So, after addressing this conflict between these leaders, Paul continues with some beautiful, beautiful writing. So, we're going to go kind of from verse four to seven here. At first look, when we read this text, it looks like he's just writing a bunch of pithy little sayings that we can tattoo or put on our wall and quote. We'll soon learn there's something bigger at play here. And first, Paul doubles down on what? On joy. He doubles down on it. He says, rejoice. Rejoice. He says it twice. And there's a reason for this. He's saying, be people of joy. Be people of joy. I'll say it again. Be people of joy. And what he's doing here is he's kind of pointing back to what he's just addressed. He says, don't, don't let it rob you of your joy. Don't let this rob you, church, of your joy. Paul knew that the church's joy is a crucial, crucial part of its witness to the world. And Paul isn't just one of those people who wants everyone to be happy and joyful because he's happy and joyful. Those are the worst people to be around. Paul's not like that. Paul's in jail. He's literally in prison in Rome as he's writing this. He's likely hungry, in pain, lonely. Yet he's writing this. He's got joy. He's not a happy-go-lucky, but he's got joy. That's what makes Paul's emphasis on joy so powerful. It's that it's there and it's present through suffering and through celebration. For a follower of Jesus, and Gordon, Gordon Fee writes this so well. He says, joy, unmitigated, untrammeled joy, is or at least should be the distinctive mark of the believer in Christ Jesus. For a follower of Jesus, joy comes from one's relationship with him. Tight, deep relationship with him. And it's this abiding, present, consistent contentment. It's deeply spiritual and not circumstantial. What I've found in my very limited pastoral experience is that when we lose our deep joy in Jesus, when it's just absent from our lives, our hearts become rock hard and very irritable. Little things, they, they get at us and we get irritable towards one another. Maybe you can think of someone in your life who has always embodied this Christ-like joy. 
It's always been that person who you think, oh my goodness, they have that joy of the Lord. It's really never those people who are at the center of the conflict. Let's embrace this rejoicing that Paul calls the Philippians to embrace. So, we move ahead. The next verse we find ourselves in is verse 5. And it says this, if you have your Bibles, let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. We're seeing Paul give this advice uh, or injunction, let your gentleness be known. And then followed by a statement, the Lord is near. And so gentleness, the Greeks actually viewed gentleness as their definition of it was power under control. Power under control. And the the kind of word image that Greeks in Paul's time would use would be to describe gentleness would be um, a stallion that's been tamed. Uh, I've been been to a rodeo before. Uh, It's kind of funny. I don't really belong there, but I was there. And I've seen a stallion out of control. Good luck. They're wild. Gentleness is this animal, this animal strength and power completely under control. And we can also think about something like wind or water. I mean, wind or water out of control, right? It can cause destruction. Hurricanes, floods, tsunamis, tornadoes, complete and utter destruction. But when under control can provide energy for a town. Can guide a ship. Can be a calm breeze or a gentle stream. Power under control. It's gentleness. And what Paul is saying to the Philippians is that in the midst of uncomfortable and frustrating conflict, what others should see is your gentleness. That's what other people should notice within these disputes. It's your gentleness, your power under control. Paul includes gentleness as a fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. It's, he's saying when we are in the Lord, when we are relying on the Spirit, we are gentle people. We are gentle people. We know that as humans we hold immense power that can be used to hurt one another. Uh, It won't take long to think of examples from your own life where this was the case. And this is something that James talks about in his letter so much. Paul is urging these leaders, Euodia and Syntyche, and the Philippians as a whole, to be gentle with one another, to be known and marked by a a real, authentic, spirit-filled gentleness, even in difficult circumstances. And with that, Paul follows with this statement, the Lord is near. It's an encouragement from this pastor to their congregation, the Lord is is near. The statement kind of seems out of place. It doesn't, it's not really that connected at face value to what we just read. But there are some scholars that would suggest that there's a connection between the two. 
that Paul's short sentence here it's, here, it's here to remind the Philippians that the Lord's nearness, the Lord's nearness has something to do with our ability to practice gentleness. And I think that's just for us to wrestle with. Are we, are we gentle? Are we gentle? If not, how, how close is the Lord in our lives? How close do we feel? Are we acknowledging that he's near to us? It's a really, really important for us to understand. So here we are. We're going to move ahead to verses 6 and 7. And then after that, we'll move on to the concluding verses. Uh, I, want to, I want to camp out here. We're going to pitch our tent on these verses for a few minutes because they are very, very, very familiar to us. And this is so often uh, <laughs> when we read these verses, this is how we kind of think of them. It's like this, don't worry about a thing because every little thing is going to be all right. You know, that's kind of how we like read it. One of the things you might be uh, really surprised to hear this morning is that I am uh, actually, in fact, part Jamaican, clearly. <laughs> and my, this actually goes back for generations on my dad's side. I don't know about you, but it can be hard not to look at this verse and, and uh, differentiate Bob Marley from it. It's kind of where our minds go. <laughs> I'm not a huge Bob Marley fan, but I, uh, in kind of looking him up, um, the song The Three Little Birds, or Three Little Birds, uh, was actually inspired by uh, Bob Marley's fascination with these little birds that would visit his home. And for some reason, they would give him perspective as he would write music and uh, do his thing, whatever Bob Marley did with his days. These birds would visit his home and they would bring him a sense of um, peace. Seems like his worries would go away. Bob Marley actually grew up a Christian. I don't know if you knew that. I didn't. And likely, maybe he would have been vaguely familiar with uh, Jesus' teaching on worry. Jesus' teaching on worry, and what, what he would do is he would point to the birds, and he would say, you know, if the Father cares for them, he can care for you. Don't worry. Maybe he was vaguely familiar with that story. Uh, near, the, near the end of Bob Marley's life, it's said, it's speculated that he actually cried out, to Jesus as he was passing away from cancer. Maybe that's something that deeply, deeply sat within his heart. And the, the, the verse reads this in actuality. It says, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Uh, does, is anyone here an e-reader? 
read ebooks. It's only the most serious readers that read ebooks, I find. If you, you might buy them off Amazon. Uh, there's an option to buy any book off Amazon in ebook form. And Amazon so cleverly tracks what passages of any book that we read, uh, tracks what we highlight uh, digitally. And so whether you're reading The Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter or whatever, they know what you're highlighting. And so uh, the, same, the same is said for when people, uh, the, the same is true for when people download the Bible off of Amazon, the ebook version. And so recently, Amazon compiled um, all the passages that people have highlighted, all the data. And they looked at the most highlighted passages. And with the Bible, the most highlighted passage wasn't John 3.16, it wasn't Jeremiah 29.11, these famous verses. It was actually Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7. There's just something there that we need. <laughs> that we as humans were drawn to. These words, they, they resonate with us. And something I want to say right off the bat, and this might not be the, the language that's used in your translation of the Bible, but it wasn't the NRV. I want to say this. I want to say that anxiety is awful. It's horrifying. I can struggle with anxiety, um, but I know that there are some of you in this room that would struggle with anxiety to a degree that I have no idea. I want to say that I'm sorry. It really shouldn't have to be that way. If you have, I, I, again, I just really want to make mention of this. If you have an anxiety disorder, and this is something you've been really struggling with, reading these verses can be really hard. They can be really, really challenging. It may bring up feelings of discouragement or anger because you have prayed and you have prayed. A lot of people would suggest that Paul is talking about a bit of a different kind of anxiety here that's related to the conflict that we're discussing in this text. So we won't be able to cover much ground when it comes to mental health and, and, and ideas of healing or prayer. But if you wanna talk more about this, I wanna make myself available um, after this service or throughout the week. Or I wanna encourage you to reach out to someone you trust so that you can get connected to more resources that might help you along your journey. When it comes to living without anxiety, this anxiety that he talks about, or worry, Paul borrowed directly from Jesus. Jesus uh, invited his followers to live a life free of worry, free of worry, because their heavenly Father knows and cares for them. <clears throat> Jesus was kind of getting at this point. He says, for those who don't know him or know the Father, their lives are marked by apprehension. And Paul's challenge for the Philippians here is to go to God in prayer over these details 
that we worry about, these circumstances in life that we find we're getting anxious over. Because what Paul is aware of here, and this is how it connects, is that some of the conflict that's existing in this church in Philippi is because of an unchecked worry and inconsistent prayer. Pray, this is kind of what he's saying, pray about that little creek in your home that you don't, you don't know what it is. Or that sound in your car, you don't know what's going on. Pray about that worry. Pray about that expense that you have to pay that's going to stretch you financially. Pray about that, that worry. Pray about that person that you love so deeply that's far from God. Pray about that exam that's coming up. Pray about that back issue that you've been struggling with for years. Pray about everything. And do it with thanksgiving. Do it with thanksgiving. He sneaks that in there. It's really important. It's included because it's an acknowledgement of our dependence on Jesus. Do it all in thanksgiving. The kind of gratitude that Paul is asking the Philippians to have is not just a thank you in advance, God, for the gift you're going to give me. It's a fundamental posture of, depend of dependence that we are to have as followers of Jesus. And the, and the result of grateful prayer, it's not, it's not more money in the bank. It isn't. You might have heard that somewhere. I just want to tell you that's not right. It's not always more money in the bank. And it's not a better home. The result is priceless. It's the peace of God, which transcends all understanding. Which means we can't conjure it up. This peace comes from intimacy with him. When Paul speaks of this peace guarding our hearts and minds, he's tapping into a familiar site for the Philippians. The city of Philippi was constantly guarded by Roman soldiers. There would be Roman centurions walking around the city, around the city gates and within the city, always looking for little things to take out of the picture, little threats, little crimes that they can solve. They were on constant watch. They were guarding sentries, guarding the city from threats. Prayer brings this peace that Paul talks about, which stands watch over our hearts and minds, just like that. The, the Greek language actually used here, it's like, a, it's like a sentry watch over our hearts, this peace of God. Hebrews, especially the Hebrew people especially viewed the heart as this fulcrum, the center of a person's being. Paul echoes Solomon here, King Solomon, who writes in Proverbs 4, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. If anxiety is the threat or worries, the threat upon a person's heart, the peace of God stands as the sentry 
watch, the guard. The peace of God that Paul writes about, it's not just for the individual, it actually connects the community as a whole. This peace impacts the whole community. And there's this unrest in the Philippian church, whether, whether it might be big or it might be small, but it, it is directly tied to whether or not the peace of God is prevalent in that place. Their hearts have been opened up to something. This is one of the most effective points of evangelism in an anxious world. It really is. To be a non-anxious presence, to be a non-worrisome presence, to be a person of peace, it points others to the source of that peace. They start to ask questions, why? And it stops conflict in its tracks. Okay, part three, this is our final part. Are you with me, church? So we're now going to look at these last two verses, eight and nine, before we finish up. So this is what it reads. It says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. And the God of peace will be with you. This is one of Paul's trademark lists. He loves lists. We love lists too, don't we? I love lists. I'm, I, I have a weakness for a good top 10 list. If you were to ask me to kill like 30 minutes and do something, I would probably go on YouTube and look up like top 10 something. When I was a kid, I was glued to Sports Center. Uh, TSN would do these top 10, the TSN top 10 like touchdowns or uh, dunks or something like that. And I would be so fascinated by seeing this list countdown, you know, and, and get to see these remarkable plays. So it is a bit of a weakness of mine. Sometimes I can kill a little bit of time going on YouTube looking up top 10 things. It just seems so definitive. And we can track so easily. So Paul, this is just one of his trademarks. He loves lists. It's an encouragement to me. So here Paul is listing off these virtues and these values. And he's urging this church to meditate and think on these things. Meditate. Think on such things. And you might have noticed at this point, I, this is something that I noticed early on in reading this, that these words are totally not a part of Paul's regular vocabulary. Like with some of these words, it's like, where did they come from? They're beautiful, but not, not words that Paul would typically use. They're not found in uh, Paul's literature or really any New Testament literature at all. Paul does something really, really fascinating here and really smart. These virtues and these values that uh, Paul writes about are virtues and values that the Philippians would be very, very familiar with and have, would have grown up hearing and being taught in a, in a Greco-Roman culture that they lived in. They're, these are classic Hellenistic, Greek, and Stoic values that Paul 
lists here. And by listing these Greek values, this is what he does. He, he's linking the standards and ethics that Jesus lived by to the culture that the Philippians were familiar with. It's so brilliant because it, it sits deeper with these Philippians and people who are um, native to that area. And so Paul lists these virtues for them to think and to act on. So let's go over them. First, whatever is true. Whatever is true. The truth that Paul is talking about is Jesus. And the good news, worship of anything else is to worship a lie. Whatever is true, think about these things. Next, whatever is noble. Whatever is noble. Paul wants the Philippians to think of things that are worthy of respect, not fill the mind with things that are dishonorable. This word is actually found in, in Proverbs 8, verse 6, when it's used to describe the quality of a good leader. Noble. Whatever is noble, think about that. Next, whatever is right. Whatever is right. Paul's encouraging them to dwell on what's righteous and just, which is defined by God and his character. It's a very theologically rich word. Whatever is pure. Whatever is pure. Think about that. To Paul, impurity, uh, especially from his perspective as a Jew, uh, it's whatever is tainted by evil and wickedness. The, the Philippians are being asked to think about what's pure and what's holy. It's got this kind of ritualistic nature to it, especially if you draw a comparison to the culture around the temple and the theology of the temple to purify something and sacrifice. Whatever is pure, think about that, Paul says. Whatever is lovely. This is a really, really unique word in scripture as a whole, whatever is lovely. The, this word here has everything to do with what's lovable. Whatever is lovable. Think about these things that evoke friendliness and warmth. Whatever is lovely. This, this word isn't found anywhere else in the New Testament, but uh, scholars actually find this word in one other place, and it's actually in the book of Esther. And this word is used to describe Esther and her beauty and her character. Whatever is lovely, think about such things. Next, whatever is admirable and then excellent and praiseworthy. And these, these are more general statements from Paul. Paul wants them to think about things that are worthy of being admired. Think about these things. Fill your mind with these things. And this is an incredibly practical and applicable moment in this text. It's a portion that's really meant for the Philippians to apply right away. And so he says, think about such things. It's, it's an action point right there. What are you so often thinking about? It's kind of the question beneath what Paul is stating. What are you so often thinking about? What's on your mind? There's a lot on our minds, isn't there? There's a lot we're thinking about. We can spend a lot of time thinking about a lot of different things. Is it any of these things that Paul just listed? 
or are they contrary, maybe even opposite to what Paul lists in these virtues? Now more than ever, I, I say this very confidently, now more than ever, it's scary easy to fill our minds with things that are not virtuous or reflective of the character of Jesus. So, so easy. We actually have to make more of an effort to avoid these things coming into our mind. So this is a, this is a practical application piece for us as a church, Calvary. So this, these are the steps, and I want to challenge you to make every effort to do this. So first thing, and you don't have to do this now, but remember to do this later. Write down each of these virtues, each one, one by one, as a list. Then what I want you to do next is, is put the list down and take inventory of your social media or your news feed. Just hop on social media and, then, and hang, hang out on social media for like half an hour. Do whatever you usually do on Instagram, on Facebook, maybe even on your, your news app. Explore it. Scroll and engage. Observe. Then what I want you to do is, is pick up the list again. And measure what you see on your social media. Compare it against these virtues that Paul lists. Do they match up? Are the virtues that Paul lists here matching with the virtues that are uh, being represented on your feed? And if they don't, maybe, maybe your thoughts have felt disordered recently. Maybe you've felt like your thoughts are dark, really dark, like so dark that you feel really ashamed to tell anyone. Maybe they feel malicious or angry, or maybe they're just um, unfocused. Slowly, this is, this is the challenge, slowly begin to decrease the intake of content. Just slowly begin to in, decrease the intake of content that is an active opposition to these virtues that Paul lists. So you can do that in a number of different ways. You can um, actively I click on an image that shows up and just say, I'm not interested in seeing this. Or you can block uh, someone or unfollow something that's providing content that's polluting your mind. Make every effort to slowly decrease the intake of content that it's in active opposition to these virtues and values. And then back to the text, Paul, Paul's kind of switching to acting on these values. And this is where we land in verse 9. And we're going to wrap up here. This is a reflection of Jesus, who always, always, always considered virtues as not, not something that's just supposed to be discussed, but something that's supposed to be embodied. The philosophers that existed, that, that Paul was constantly contending with, these were just things that were talked about, these virtues. They were good ideas. Jesus said, this isn't something that's just up for discussion. It's something that we actually have to embody and act out. And so the way that Paul suggests that these virtues can be acted out is to carefully imitate 
him as he imitates Jesus. This is a very, very classic thing that Paul says. And imitation as a theme is something that we've seen in this uh, letter before and in the Pauline corpus as a whole. Imitate me as I imitate Jesus. Paul is saying, I've been around the block. I've experienced some things, Philippians. I've come to know this God of peace. I've grown close to Jesus, the Prince of Peace. Put these things that I am listing into practice, and you will be part of this beautiful, stunning, magnificent relationship with the Lord. The God of peace will be with you. That's how he finishes this text. The God of peace will be with you. Paul isn't saying, I am the way. <laughs> Some of us read that and we think that's what Paul's saying. He's not saying he's the way. He's saying, I know the way. Follow me. That's where the God of peace is. And so to come full circle, I'm going to invite the worship team back up. We need to be reminded of the fact that Paul isn't just listing these virtues for nothing. He's not just listing these virtues for nothing. He isn't declaring that peace will guard their hearts for nothing. He isn't urging them to not be anxious for nothing. He isn't advising them to be gentle for nothing. He isn't doubling down on joy for nothing. And this is where we'll land, is that Paul, what he just did, is he just laid a detailed, practical, and beautiful roadmap for these Philippians and for these two leaders, Euodia and Syntyche, to find their way out of this conflict. He just said, this is how it's done. In the early 80s, uh, and this is, this is how I'm going to wrap up. In the early 80s, there was two hugely talented basketball players that came into uh, the NBA. Might have been earlier than that, actually. Uh, Magic Johnson of the later Lakers and Isaiah Thomas of the Pistons. And these two, they were close, close, close friends. They came in and they were experiencing everything together as they navigated fame and um, playing against one another and rivalry and um, just the demands of being a professional athlete. They navigated this together and, and really it was, it was amazing. The, the league hadn't really seen anything like this. Every time these two players would take the court against one another, they would meet in the middle and they'd kiss each other on the cheek before they started playing and competing. There was an evident deep brotherhood and friendship here that existed. Slowly, their friendship and their brotherhood and their closeness was eroded by competitiveness. It all started with one game and they just weren't, they weren't very kind to one another 
And then what happened was uh, Magic Johnson got HIV AIDS. And Isaiah was absent. He didn't show up when Magic needed him. And then next, it was 1992, and the Olympics were happening, and the the famous uh, basketball, USA basketball dream team was being formed. All the best basketball players of America were coming together to compete in the Olympics together. And Magic Johnson made every effort to make sure that Isaiah Thomas wasn't on that team with them. It was Isaiah's dream to be on this team. And Magic said, no. He made every effort to make sure that he wasn't on that team. Uh, Months of bitterness turned to years, which turned to near two decades of silence, bitterness, anger, frustration with one another. In 2017, the NBA, they wanted to start this broadcast called the Players Only Broadcast. And what they were gonna do was they were gonna bring two players together who had a history and they were gonna sit them down face to face, close, like their knees were touching. And they were just gonna say, have at it, have a conversation. And spectators were just gonna observe what they would talk about. So what the NBA did is they invited Magic Johnson and Isaiah Thomas. And he said, would you come in here, cameras on, have a conversation face to face? And they said, yes. And what happened next was stunning. They got together in the room and they started talking and it was literally like, you can, you can go watch it online actually. It's literally like watching two teenagers joking around, laughing, smiling. They were giddy. That spark was still there. And at the very end, this is what Magic Johnson said about their relationship. He started with this. This is at the very conclusion of the conversation. He said, this has been a tremendous day. And now they're looking at each other straight face. This has been a tremendous day. My wife, my mother, my father have been saying, you need to get back together. So when everybody called, I said, no question, we're going to do this. And just to sit across from you and relive those moments of fun, of excellence, of working hard, dreaming big. He looks at Isaiah and he says, you're my brother. Let me apologize to you if I hurt you and that we haven't been together. And at this point, Magic Johnson's voice begins to crack. And Isaiah's face begins to fold a bit. He says, God is good to bring us back together. And for the last 20 seconds of this interview is two large, grown men holding each other, weeping in each other's arms. And the interview ended. 
Paul invites this church into a peacemaking process between two leaders, Euodia and Syntyche. And with that, he sets the table for them. He sets the stage. And anyone else to make peace. Rejoice. Be gentle. Stop worrying. Let peace guard your hearts and minds. Think about these virtues and follow me as I follow Jesus. Let's pray. God, thank you for this time. As we jump into more worship, would we reach out to you? We long to be connected with you, Jesus. If there's something in this text that deeply, deeply sits with us, would we take that to you during this time? In your name we pray. Amen.